have a little confession to make. On my way in today, I was very nervous about today's sermon. I feel unprepared. I am unrehearsed. I am probably unpolished. And in keeping with the theme of today's sermon, the Lord brought a verse to my mind. It said, uh, this is Paul writing to Thessalonians, and he says uh, to the Thessalonians, that my words and my message not come to you in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in the words of men, but in the power of God. And I thought about that, and I thought, well, that's the Holy Spirit bringing the Scripture back to my mind. And the Holy, Scripture, the Holy Spirit can do that because of the covenant relationship that I have with Christ. And so what we're going to do today is look at uh, Matthew 5 and take a look at Christ fulfilling the law and how that impacts our relationship with the Lord. So let's go to the Scripture, Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20 and verse 48. Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for your law, which is perfect. Thank you for Jesus came to fulfill the law. And Father, I pray that you would reach down into the heart of every individual here, that your power and your spirit would be made real, would be made manifest, and that you would speak to them the message that you want them to hear personally. Thank you for, uh, for bringing us here together as your family. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to be skipping around to some different passages of, of Scripture today. Uh, but uh, if you've got a, uh, a physical book, put your thumb in Matthew 5 or bookmark it on your uh, handheld computer. Uh, we're going to look at a few things regarding Jesus, people, and the law. First thing that we're going to take a look at is Jesus' purpose was to fulfill the law. Next, that the entire law must be fulfilled. Third, that we can't fulfill the law ourselves, that Jesus fulfills the law for us, and that we must confront the cross. Some background to Matthew 5. It's the first chapter of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with the Beatitudes. And it's not really a sermon. It's uh, more of a lesson. It wasn't delivered on what we would call a mountain. So Sermon on the Mount is really uh, a misnomer. It's written by Matthew, who is a Jewish tax collector. And he's addressing in his text primarily a Jewish audience. So it's best understood when interpreted or seen through uh, a first century Jew living in Jerusalem. 
for us to grasp uh, the richness of this message, we've got to abandon our 21st century Western concepts and look at it through the eyes of a first century Jerusalem resident. Matthew tells us that Jesus is teaching in the traditional rabbinic method. He goes to a place where he can be heard. Now, this is the, during the Galilean portion of his ministry, so he's probably in the hills of Galilee on a hillside where the crowd can gather below uh, to hear and see him. He may have had a favorite teaching spot that was acoustically well-suited uh, for such occasions. And the place where he teaches here may be similar or could be the same place where he issues the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus assumes the rabbinic posture of sitting down to teach while disciples gather around him. Um, I've taught at community college, and unlike the university professors that I've uh, were my colleagues in the classes that I've taught, uh, we stand to lecture and sit down to grade papers. Um, rabbis sat to teach, and they didn't give written exams. The students simply applied to his life what the rabbi was teaching. The disciples here in Matthew 5 likely included Peter, Andrew, James, and John. At this point in Matthew's gospel, we know that those are the only four that had been specifically called by Jesus at this time. Matthew was called later in chapter 9, and the entire list of the disciples is given in chapter 10. Some of John the Baptist's disciples could have been in attendance. And included in this account, counted among these disciples, could have been some Jewish leaders or their surrogates who were curious about Jesus. They wanted to know more about what he was bringing uh, to the uh, table in terms of uh, uh, Israel's religious life, religious teaching. Uh, Nicodemus comes to mind as a possible candidate who would fit this. Uh, maybe also Joseph of uh, Arimathea. Uh, Nicodemus came to Jesus secretly at night and asked him questions. Joseph of Arimathea was uh, said to be a disciple or a follower of Christ, but secretly. So there were these people who were in high positions in Jewish society who weren't really openly identified with Christ, but they were following him. And maybe they had some of their staff attend what Jesus was saying and report back to them. The idea of a disciple, though, is basically that of a learner. So even though there were disciples that came up to Jesus, everybody who was following him at this time, who was part of this crowd that was gathered at the foot of the seal, may have been considered disciples. They were followers. They were learners. They wanted to hear what the rabbi had to teach them. In the larger context, there's a geopolitical situation going on uh, with the Jewish nation at this time. Rome was occupying Judea, Samaria, and all of the Mediterranean basin. The names Judea and Samaria were provincial names given by Rome to administrate the areas. Judea covered most of what was formerly the nation of Judah. Samaria covered much of what was formerly Israel. And before there was a Judah and an Israel, there was one unified Israel. The history of ancient Israel is one of continually breaking the covenant that God had established with them. The Jewish religious factions of the day, 
the most prominent of them being the Pharisees, saw their situation, their present situation where Jesus was teaching there, arising from God enacting the curse clauses of the Mosaic Covenant. You can read Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and see where God promises blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience to the covenant. Among the curses is that the Jews would be carried into exile by another nation. But later, they would return to the promised land. This exile had already taken place. And now, the nation was occupied by another foreign power. There was a sense that if there was disobedience to the law, there would be another exile. The Pharisees became the sect, they became the group of religious leaders that stressed adherence to the law to promote and preserve the right relationship between the nation of Israel and their God. Because of what happened during the exile period, when Judah was taken into captivity by Babylon, there was an expectation of the Messiah's coming. Messiah means anointed one. A great many people expected a great many things from this anointed one, from this Messiah. Some said he would be a conquering king who would throw off the Roman yoke and establish a new Israeli kingdom with Jerusalem as its capital. Others anticipated he would be a prophet like Isaiah or a ruler like Moses. Most people had preconceived ideas of what the Messiah would do, who he would be, and how he would accomplish his purpose. So as Jesus sits down on this hillside, he begins by addressing these preconceptions. He tells them that his purpose, the Messiah's purpose, is to fulfill the law. Verse 17 says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus begins with all the blesseds of the beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed, 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 blessed. Blessed means to be highly favored by God. So to be highly favored by God, he's saying, this is what happens to be highly favored by God. All of these things that he's talking about are a unity. It's not like, well, I'm going to be a peacemaker and get this blessing, or I'm going to mourn and get this blessing. They are a totality, a unity. So when all of this is done, this is the person or the nation who is highly favored by God. And then after he goes through this, he drops this bombshell after talking about what it means to be blessed. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I want to focus on those three words for a minute, do not think. Ladies, have you ever asked your husband or boyfriend, what are you thinking? And do you get the reply, nothing? Well, how can you, be, how can you not be thinking of anything? You've got to be thinking of something. No, just not thinking of anything. I'm a guy. Does that kind of irritate you a bit? Well, you should rejoice because the man that you're speaking to is actually obeying what Jesus says to do here. Do not think. So, guys, when 
your lady asks you, what are you thinking? Just say, I'm obeying Jesus. I'm not thinking. You see, many people thought that when the Messiah came, he would establish a new covenant with Israel, and the old covenant would be abolished. It was going to be replaced. Picture in your mind two business partners. They own a business together. And for whatever reason, they agree to tear up the old partnership and establish a new business relationship. And if both parties agree to that, there's no harm in that, right? Well, the big deal here is that God is a just God, and the covenants that he makes are everlasting covenants. So he can't do justice if he nullifies an everlasting covenant. Here's some passages to consider. Genesis 9:16, the covenant with Noah. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. When you see a rainbow, that is a sign of an everlasting covenant that God has between everything that exists on the earth and himself. Genesis 17.7, the covenant with Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring forever. There's an everlasting covenant he sets up with Abraham that he would be God forever. Psalm 105.10, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel, an everlasting covenant. See a theme here. Finally, Isaiah 61.8. There's a promised new covenant. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That's, this is what they, they may have been thinking based on Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares their Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with them, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant would be different based on forgiveness and grace, not like the old one based on justice under the law. This law will always be written within their hearts, and sin will be a memory instead of a reality. It was painfully obvious to Israel that they could not keep the terms of the old covenant. So it makes sense to think the old covenant would need to be abolished to establish a new covenant. Remember, 
God's covenants are everlasting covenants, so they can't be terminated. They must remain in effect forever. They are ironclad and eternal, and Jesus confirms this by saying he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Second thing we see is that the entire law needed to be fulfilled. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it's accomplished. In the English language, when we write, we have things that are very small. We have the preposition I, which is, or the, the pronoun I, which is just one letter. We have periods. We have commas. All of these are important to understand what is being written. The smallest marks in Hebrew is a dot or an iota. These are very small things, but they can have very profound effects on what is being communicated. So as Jesus turns his attention to fulfilling the law, we need to understand what he's talking about here. When he talks about everything, not even a dot, not even an iota, will be unfulfilled. He's talking about a written law. He could be talking about a moral law that everybody has within them, but that's not written with punctuation marks and dots and stuff like that. He could be talking specifically about the law of Moses, but that just applied to Israel. He could be talking more broadly about the entire series of unfolding events that God initiates in the form of covenants. So to understand this better, understand what he's talking about, let's turn to Romans 10, 1 through 4. Maybe that will get us a better understanding. Romans says, brothers, this is Paul talking about Israel, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God in seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In verse 1, Paul's desire and prayer is for the Jewish people that they may be saved. He says in verse 2 that they have a zeal, that is, a great energy and enthusiasm for God. But it's not based on knowledge, not based on their knowledge of God. The knowledge that they have lacks discernment or a basic understanding, basic recognition of some of the fundamental aspects. What they lack is a discernment or understanding of the righteousness of God. So the righteousness of God has got to differ from our own righteousness. They established a self-righteousness and did not submit to the righteousness of God. So there's a difference between the righteousness we establish or what we recognize as righteousness and what God recognizes as righteousness. Jesus paints six pictures in Matthew 5, contrasting our own righteousness and God's righteousness. Matthew 
5, 21 through 48 gives us a literary formula to understand these contrasts. The first part of these contrasts begins with Jesus saying, you have heard it said that. It introduces the concept of the righteousness that's recognized by mankind. You've heard it said that you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You've heard this said about divorce. You've heard that you shouldn't swear falsely. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. All of these things are spelled out in the Mosaic Law, in the covenant that God established at Mount Sinai with Moses. So isn't the person who holds to these standards a righteous person? Well, Jesus counters by saying, But I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you, don't be angry and hurl insults. But I say to you, lustful thoughts are the same thing as the act of adultery. But I say to you, divorce doesn't necessarily nullify the marriage covenant in God's eyes. But I say to you, don't resist the evil one. But I say to you, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus is defining God's righteousness. He's defining, he's spelling out the concept of righteousness as God sees it. Think back to the rich young ruler in Luke 18. You're probably familiar with that story. The ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, you know the commandments. He's going to refer to the law. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Pretty much what he covered here in Matthew 5. And the ruler says, oh yeah, I've kept all those since my youth, since I was a child. But Jesus didn't mention a commandment in there. He didn't mention do not covet. Now, the rich young ruler had a lot of riches. And when he was told, you lack one thing, give everything you have away and follow me. When Jesus told him that, he couldn't. He couldn't keep the commandment, even in mankind's understanding of righteousness, and just giving away stuff. That's what he needed, just give away stuff. And the other things... He probably didn't keep those other commandments according to God's righteousness. You know, if you can't keep the commandment according to man's righteousness, God's righteousness is probably out of your reach too. Paul writes in Romans 10:4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word end in that sentence comes from the Greek word telos. It's also translated goal. Our culmination. So Christ is the culmination of the law regarding the issue of righteousness to everyone who believes. So what does that mean? Why is it significant? Let's go back to Matthew 5. When Jesus is contrasting the you have heard's with the but I say, he's not only setting the standard of righteousness for you and me. 
He's also setting the standard of righteousness for himself. He showed anger, but he was never towards a person. He was angry about actions that offended God. When he got angry in the temple, turned over the money, money changers' tables, chased the, the businessmen out of there, he was angry about how people were relating to God. From what we know, he never married. He never swore at somebody or took an oath. He didn't even say, by golly, I'm going to get you for that. He didn't resist the evil one, even when he was being nailed to a cross. He loved those who hated him. And he did so much more in ways that we can only begin to comprehend. To operate in the realm of man-defined righteousness is still to be unrighteous. Jesus lived according to God's definition of righteousness. Hebrews 4.15 says this about Jesus. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So if you're asked, did Jesus ever commit sin? You can answer, no, he didn't. And you can use Hebrews 4.15 to bolster your argument. So Jesus then accomplished the demands of the law. He fulfilled the requirements of a sinless, righteous life. 1 Peter 2.22 says of Jesus, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. As God, he always had a sinless existence. As a man in the flesh, he committed no sin. He is righteousness personified. He is the complete accomplishment of the law in a single person. Well, this brings us to a grim realization that we cannot fulfill the law. Verse 19 of Matthew 5 says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells us that the significance of keeping the whole law, that if you skate by on the least commandment, just tell a little white lie. You're called least in the kingdom of heaven. If you teach someone to skate by, you're called the least. Jesus is using a play on words here. Least in both cases in this verse is the Greek adjective elakistos. Elakistos meaning the smallest, the weakest, or the very littlest. Teeny tiny. Kind of like Ant-Man, only without the powers. So to illustrate what Jesus is saying, imagine you're driving in a 35-mile-an-hour zone, and you're doing... 36 miles an hour, okay? And you know this because there's one of those radar guns set up and it reflects back to you this sign that says your current speed is and then it shows up. So as you're going, you see it and you see you're doing 36 and you feel pretty confident you're not going to get pulled over, that if there's a cop around, he's just going to kind of let it slide. But then you look in the rearview mirror. And there's these flashing blue and red lights. 
And so you pull over, and the officer gets out of his car, walks over to the driver's side, taps on your window, says, need your license and registration. That's an awful feeling, isn't it? So you're identified. He runs your license plate number. And he comes back. Do you know how fast you were going? Well, yes, officer. I was only going one mile an hour over the speed limit. And how fast is that? Well, it's 36. And what's the speed limit? What's well, 35. That's correct. I'm going to need to write you a citation. And you say, wait a minute. Shouldn't I just get a warning? Now I'm going to need you to step out of the car. And it just kind of gets worse from there. Because you try to justify yourself under the law to the officer. And there was no justification. He was enforcing the terms of the law. The covenant that allows you to have the privilege or the right to drive on the road according to the, to the rules of the road. And you didn't like it. Oh, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no argument. Sorry, step out of the car. You see, a lawbreaker, in this case, one who is an admitted lawbreaker, yeah, I was doing 36, is still a lawbreaker. The least law broken disqualifies you from being righteous. See, the law itself was not intended to make us righteous. It was designed to show us our unrighteousness. It gives us no power, no ability to do it. It simply shows us that we can't do it. Consider Deuteronomy 4.13. And he declared to you his covenant, he's speaking of Israel, which he commanded you to perform. You're commanded to perform it. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. There is a command That's given. You're commanded to do the Ten Commandments. But there's no empowerment to do it. The law gives us knowledge of sin, but fails to justify us or make us right under that law. Now consider Romans 10.5 in relation to Matthew 19, or Matthew 5.19. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But there is no righteousness based on the law. Because we're incapable of doing the law. Only Jesus keeps the law. He did them and he lived by them. Additionally, he taught them according to God's definition of righteousness. He teaches here in Matthew 5 that Jesus shows us how high the bar goes in relation to righteousness. He's teaching us that God's righteousness is far above man's righteousness. And we can't even keep man's righteousness. So what happens? Well, Jesus fulfills the law for us. Verse 20 in Matthew 5 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's bringing us to a point here where the Pharisees, he's using them as an illustration, being the people who 
define righteousness in Israel. He's saying your righteousness has to go beyond that. Your righteousness has to exceed what these righteous people are doing. And even if you do exceed that righteousness, you have to exceed man's righteousness and attain God's righteousness. And that's a pretty difficult thing to do. So, Jesus says, I'm going to fulfill the law. I'm going to be God's righteousness for you. See, when we lean on our own self-righteousness, like you're leaning on a stick, that stick breaks every time. There's nothing that will support the weight of sin that we have based on our own righteousness. The point of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5 can be found or summarized in the final verse, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, most people settle for excellence because they can't be perfect. I settle for excellence all the time. Sometimes I settle for just enough. But Jesus is saying here, be perfect. The key word to understand here is perfect. In verse 17, Jesus says he came to fulfill the law. The Greek word there is pleuroo, which can be translated to complete. In verse 48, perfect is the Greek adjective, teleos, meaning complete in all its parts. There's an idea of total completeness here in order to fulfill the law. So he's saying that you must be totally complete, totally complete in your adherence to the law by God's standards in order to be righteous under the law. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So is Jesus commanding his followers to be perfectly complete or to fulfill the law? Well, he's just established that it's impossible for mortal man to fulfill the law. Israel as a nation was unable to fulfill it. And Jesus says that even the scribes and the Pharisees, the experts on the law, on how to live by it, can't obey it. So then what's the point? The point is that the law requires someone to fulfill it. It's a contract. It's a covenant. It must be fulfilled. It must be completed or perfected for the terms and conditions of the covenant to be satisfied. Jesus satisfies the terms and conditions of the law, because we can't. You all know about terms and conditions. When you log into Wi-Fi in a public place, you're asked to verify that you've read the terms and conditions by pressing that little box there. And then you can connect, or you press done, and you're on the Wi-Fi network. But I don't know anyone who ever reads the terms and conditions. Because you know you just need to click that box to use it. No matter what the terms and conditions are, if you don't click that box, you're not going to use it. You know, we're all a bunch of liars because we say we've read the terms and conditions. We just want to use the Wi-Fi, don't we? We're not there to comprehend the legal ramifications and understand the technicalities that go along with using Wi-Fi. And it could be argued that many lawyers, even if they did read it, would probably be flummoxed and confused by all these terms and conditions. 
Well, that's kind of how it is with righteousness. That is to say, we want to have righteousness ascribed to us, like Abraham had it ascribed to him when he believed God. We want to be righteous in our person, in ourselves. We want to do righteous things to please God. But we don't want to and we can't understand and perform the legal requirements of God's righteousness. So that means we've got to confront the cross. This leaves us then at the point where the law was fulfilled, where the deal was sealed, where the deal was sealed at the cross. Jesus, being the fulfillment of the law, is innocent under the law. He's the only human being who did not deserve to die. Look at the cross on the wall behind me. To the left of the cross is mankind before the law was fulfilled. Then we have the cross, the fulfillment, the turning point of history. And to the right is man after the fulfillment. It's kind of like a timeline. On the left side of the cross, we're still ignorance of God's righteousness. Romans 3, 9 through 10 says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. No one understands the righteousness of God. And this condition is universal. Romans 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin ultimately leads to death. Paul continues writing in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you've got sin, you've got death, and death leads to judgment. Hebrews 9.27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So on the left side of the cross, there's sin, death, judgment. That's what awaits a person. But Jesus committed no sin. He was tempted, yet he was without sin. Still, he died. Why? He died because he fulfilled the law. He satisfied the terms and conditions of the laws of demand. He was free to walk out of the courtroom of God without being charged with the least offense. But that's not us. We have an accuser. A prosecutor who delights in bringing charges against us before God, handing us over to the judge, and the judge will have to hand us over to the guard, who then puts us in prison. Jesus said, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Sin brings with it a fine we cannot even begin to pay. But something marvelous happens at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Key phrase there, righteousness of God. A covenant identifies two parties as one. Takes two individuals, makes them one family. It's a legal remedy. We are identified by God as sin itself. We are slaves to sin. 
it has so permeated mankind's condition that we are sin. So God made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to become sin, to become identified with our condition for our sake, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. When we're in Christ, we have a new, special existence with God. When Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he was talking about us before we confront the cross. Before we confront the cross, we are enemies of God. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what happens when a person confronts the cross? Well, a couple things. They can walk away and stay on that left side. But they don't have to. There's another alternative. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who believe that Jesus has the authority to fulfill the law for them and receive it personally are given the right, given the power to become children of God. They become identified in covenant with God. They enter into a new relationship with him. So how does this new relationship change things? Well, let's go to the right side of the cross. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Sin brings death. The literal meaning of death is separation. Death separates the spirit from the body. Separates people from each other. Separates people from God. There will be a time, unless the Lord comes back first, when a person will die physically. But it says here, the person who believes in Jesus, they have passed. It's a past perfect tense, meaning a completed action with a present ongoing state of being. They have passed out of death, separation, into life, union with God. The confirmation of this union is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised this to his disciples at the Last Supper. John 14, 28 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That happened to me on the way driving in today. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 2 Timothy 1.4, Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy that the Holy Spirit dwells within him. It's the seal or confirmation of this new covenant relationship with God in Christ. This is the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah 31. It's unlike the old one. It doesn't invalidate it. The old covenant is still eternal. It's just fulfilled. And the new covenant doesn't apply to just the Jews. It's available to anyone. Going back to Isaiah 61, 11, we read, For the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up 
before all the nations. The terms of this new covenant is explained in Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not condemned because you're not charged with anything. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. A new law of spirit of life now has jurisdiction. The old law had no power to begin with. It has no power to give life. There's a new law, a new jurisdiction. So what are we to do with this? Well, pick a spot on the wall behind me in relation to the cross. Let that spot represent where you are right now in your relationship with God. Look at it. Maybe you've picked a spot on the left side. You have more doubts. You don't quite believe the claims of Christ. Well, that's okay. Everybody starts there. If you're not sure where you are, pick a spot on the cross. Focus your attention there. Maybe you want to believe that there's, maybe you believe that there's something that's not quite right. Or maybe you're thinking of every reason not to believe, but something is just dragging you, kicking and screaming all the way towards God. If you believe that Jesus became sin on your behalf and that you are now presently the righteousness of God in Christ, focus on a spot to the right of the cross. You know what? Nobody knows what you're looking at. Because they're all looking toward the cross. They're not looking at you. But God knows what you're looking at. He's looking with a longing in his heart that you would become the righteousness of God. He's looking at you with love, no matter where you look. He sees you dressed in garments of salvation and covered with robes of righteousness. Even if you're not there, he's calling you to himself. Jesus came to fulfill the law for you. All of its terms and conditions. We can't do that. But he did because of his great love for you. Because he was able to do that. We can't become the righteousness of God. But Jesus becomes identified with sin. So we can become identified with God. And because he's innocent under the law, death could not hold on to him. He now lives, interceding for us in the court of God, saying, I fulfilled the terms, the conditions of the law for you, for this person. This person is not guilty. He can go free. The only condition of the new covenant that hasn't been fulfilled is Jesus coming back for his bride. That's the only condition that's left, and he promised he would do that. So the question is, what do you do with this? Only you know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a just God, that you make eternal covenants, and we can count on your everlasting love, eternal grace, faithfulness, and righteousness. Father, we thank you that Jesus became the righteousness of God on our behalf. We thank you that because of him, we have life, we have the Spirit, we have union with you. Pray that if there's anybody here who needs to take that step and confront the cross, that in their heart, whatever way they know how, that they would do that.
for those of us who do understand that we are saved by grace, I pray that you would bring to our knowledge and a deeper appreciation of the righteousness of God that we are now in Christ Jesus. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.